Hello, and welcome to Always Responding, a podcast for all first responders. I'm KB, a 20-year veteran with law enforcement. My co-host, Sean, won't be able to join us for this episode, but like we say here on Always Responding, family will always come first. I want to thank my guests who joined me during the last episode, Jen and Heidi, as we talked about what each of us experienced during those 11 horrific minutes of 1 October and how that event has affected our lives and the lives of our loved ones. Jen and Heidi spoke so eloquently about how they were feeling that night, what they were thinking, and just how the whole experience has changed them. You know, I believe it's so important to have conversations like we did. When you experience traumatic events like 1 October, or whatever your personal traumatic experience may be, talk about it. Share it with someone. You know, it's so healthy to get it out and not just to keep it all bottled up inside. I was thinking about our traumatic event, the shooting of 1 October. Now, this event was known worldwide. We shared our traumatic event with the world. I was wondering if that was a good thing or a bad thing. There are those who are struggling with their trauma that they endured, but it's something that they went through either alone or with maybe a partner or two. They had to endure their trauma alone. There's not a lot of people out there who can say, yeah, I was there too. I understand what you're going through. I'm also struggling with the same trauma from the same event. I know with the 1 October event, they have groups set up on social media. There are places we can go for counseling. There's the Healing Garden. We just completed the 5K one-mile run walk for the 1 October Memorial Run. So there are always a reminder of the event and a healing process for us. I, I guess my point is, I know what we went through was extremely traumatic and devastating. I just worry about the other first responders who have gone through their own personal trauma that wasn't seen by the world and they're still dealing with what they experienced every anniversary of their event the way we are. But there's no one there with them telling them it's going to be okay. You know, the main reason I worry so much about our first responders who are struggling with their own trauma and stress is the numbers from Blue Help. These numbers keep going up. And here's the latest numbers for suicides in the first responders community. Police officers this year alone, 111 have committed suicide. That's 111 of our brothers and sisters who have taken their life this year alone. Firefighters, 14 of them. 14 of our brother and sisters from the fire department side have taken their lives. We've had five correction officers, one EMS, and one dispatcher also commit suicide this year. Again, these numbers are provided and updated daily by Blue Help. You know, we're trying to break the stigma around talking about suicide and feeling comfortable about speaking up. So if you're feeling stressed or you feel like you're alone and are the only one who is struggling with issues of trauma, know that you're not alone. We're here for you. Always Responding will always be here for you. Always Responding pays tribute to first responders who paid the ultimate sacrifice and were killed in the line of duty. Unfortunately, those numbers keep rising and we are up to 191 officers killed in the line of duty this year so far. I will now read the names of the latest officers who have paid the ultimate sacrifice and were killed in the line of duty. Correctional Officer Caitlin Rittenauer, Texas Department of Criminal Justice, Correctional Institutions Division, Texas. End of watch, Saturday, September 3rd. Correctional Officer Caitlin Rittenauer was killed in a vehicle crash while leaving the Reuben M. Torres Unit at 125 Private Road 4303 in Hondo. She had worked an assignment at the Torres Unit and was returning to her regular duty station at the Briscoe Unit when her car was struck by an oncoming vehicle as she merged into traffic. She succumbed to her injuries at the scene. Officer Rittenauer has served with the Texas Department of Criminal Justice Correctional Institutions Division for five months and was assigned to the Briscoe Unit. She is survived by her mother, father, sister, grandparents, and fiancé. She was 23 years old. Deputy Sheriff Jonathan Kaliski, 
Cobb County Sheriff's Office, Georgia, end of watch Thursday, September 8th. Deputy Sheriff Jonathan Kaliski and Deputy Sheriff Marshall Irvin were shot and killed while serving a felony theft warrant at 2474 Hampton Glen Court in Marietta shortly before 8 p.m. They were taking the subject into custody when another subject inside the home confronted them with a firearm. Both deputies gave command for the man to drop the firearm before exchanging of shots. Both deputies suffered fatal wounds. The wanted subject and the shooter both barricaded themselves in the home before they were both taken into custody later that night. Deputy Sheriff Koleski was a United States Army veteran and had served with the Cobb County Sheriff's Office. He is survived by his wife. He was 42 years old, badge number 07072, and he was a military veteran. Deputy Sheriff Marshall Irvin Jr., Cobb County Sheriff's Office, Georgia, end of watch, Thursday, September 8th. Deputy Sheriff Marshall Irvin was also killed in the shootout that killed Sheriff Jonathan Koleski. Deputy Irvin had served with the Cobb County Sheriff's Office for 10 years. He is survived by his wife and two children. He was 38 years old, badge number 12004. Trooper Cadet Patrick Dupree, Georgia State Patrol, Georgia. End of watch, Thursday, September 8th. Trooper Cadet Patrick Dupree passed away after participating in a physically demanding weapons retentions course at the Georgia Public Safety Training Center at 1000 Indian Springs Drive in Forsyth at 7.30 p.m. After completing the exercise, Trooper Cadet Dupree collapsed. He received life-saving measures on site and was rushed to the hospital, where he could not be revived. Trooper Cadet Dupree has served with the Georgia State Patrol for almost two months and previously served in law enforcement for eight years. He is survived by his wife, daughter, and two sons. He was 36 years old, badge number 847. Police Officer Dylan Vakoff. Arvada Police Department, Colorado, end of watch, Sunday, September 11th. Police officer Dylan Vakoff was shot and killed while responding to a domestic disturbance in the 6700 block of West 51st Street at about 1.40 a.m. He and another officer were attempting to break up a fight between the family members when one of the involved men opened fire, wounding a woman who was also involved in the disturbance. The subject then exchanged shots with Officer Vakoff and the other officer. Officer Vakoff was mortally wounded before the subject was also shot. Officer Vakoff was transported to a Lutheran hospital where he succumbed to his wounds. Officer Vakoff was a U.S. Air Force veteran and had served with the Arvada Police Department for three years. He was 27 years old and a military veteran. Police Officer Lloyd Mike Todd, Detroit Police Department, Michigan. End of watch, Monday, September 12th. Police Officer Mike Todd succumbed to complications of gunshot wounds sustained on December 5, 1998 by gunfire at Nashville Street and West Philia Street in Detroit at 11.10 p.m. Officer Todd and two other plainclothes officers were attempting to stop a van wanted in connection with an abduction earlier in the day. Once the van started to flee, a pursuit ensued and Officer Sean Bandy and another officer joined the chase. When the van slowed down, a suspect in the back opened fire on the cruisers, striking all three officers. Officer Todd, who was driving, was shot in the head. Shrapnel and glass from the windshield hit another officer. Officer Bandy, the passenger of the first marked cruiser, was struck in the head, neck, and chest by multiple rounds. Bullet fragments and glass hit Officer Bandy's partner. All officers were transported to St. John's Hospital, where Officer Bandy succumbed to his injuries the following day. Officer Todd remained in a coma for over two months and spent a year in a rehabilitative facility. He was paralyzed on the left side of his body, lost his right eye, and suffered partial brain damage. He required 24-hour care until succumbing to his injuries 23 years later. Four suspects were convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. The fifth suspect was sentenced to 5 to 15 years and was murdered in 2017 after being paroled. Officer Todd was a United States Coast Guard veteran and had served with the Detroit Police Department for five years. He is survived by his son, sisters, and brothers. He was 57 years old, badge number 473, and a military veteran. Police Officer Sierra Burton, Richmond Police Department, Indiana, end of watch Sunday, September 18th. 
Police officer Sierra Burton succumbed to gunshot wound sustained while conducting a traffic stop on August 10, 2022. Other officers had requested her assistance to stop a moped being driven by a narcotic suspect in a 200 block of North 12th Street. Officer Burton had deployed her canine partner, Brev, who indicated the presence of narcotics in the moped. As officers began to search the vehicle, the man pulled out a concealed handgun and opened fire, striking Officer Burton in the head. The man was shot and wounded by the other officers before he fled on foot. He was taken into custody following a brief foot pursuit. Officer Burton was flown to Miami Valley Hospital where she remained on life support until September 1st. She was taken to a hospice facility on September 3rd and succumbed to her wounds on September 18th. Officer Burton has served with the Richmond Police Department for four years. She is survived by her fiancé, mother, and stepmother. Officer Burton was shot nine days before her scheduled wedding date to her fiancé. She is 28 years old, badge number 140. Deputy Sheriff Michael Hartwick, Pinellas County Sheriff's Office, Florida. End of watch Thursday, September 22nd. Deputy Sheriff Michael Hartwick succumbed to injuries received when he was struck by a front-end loader truck at I-275 and Elmton Road near the Howard Franklin Bridge at 10.30 p.m. Deputy Hartwick was working an overnight assignment directing traffic for construction work on the I-275. He was outside his cruiser when the front-end loader carrying concrete barriers hit him. The construction worker fled the scene but was apprehended 10 hours later. Another construction worker who helped the subject hide his work vest and flee was charged with accessory after the fact. Deputy Hartwick had served with the Pinellas County Sheriff's Office for 19 years. He is survived by his two sons and mother. He was 51 years old. Senior Patrol Officer Anthony Martin, Austin Police Department, Texas, end of watch, Friday, September 23rd. Senior Patrol Officer Tony Martin was killed in a motorcycle crash at the intersection of State Highway 29 and Rural Marker 1869 in Liberty Hill at 6 p.m. Officer Martin was traveling westbound on State Highway 26 when a vehicle traveling eastbound attempted to turn left and struck the police motorcycle. Officer Martin died at the scene. Officer Martin was a United States Air Force Security Forces veteran and had served with the Austin Police Department for 15 years. He is survived by his wife, son, two daughters, granddaughters, and parents. He was 54 years old and a military veteran. Master Police Officer Tyrell Owens Riley, Columbia Police Department, South Carolina. End of watch, Saturday, September 24th. Master Police Officer Tyrell Owens Riley suffered a fatal heart attack while participating in a physical fitness training portion of the department's SWAT team assessment. He was transported to the Providence Hospital after exhibiting symptoms of a heart attack. Once at the hospital, he suffered a cardiac arrest and could not be revived. Officer Owens Riley was a U.S. Marine Corps veteran. He has served with the Columbia Police Department for over seven years and was assigned to the metro region. He was a military veteran. Sergeant Megan Burke, Oklahoma City Police Department, Oklahoma, ended watch Thursday, September 29th. Sergeant Megan Burke was killed in an on-duty vehicle crash on I-44 at about 12.34 a.m. She was traveling northbound when a southbound vehicle crossed the median and struck her vehicle head-on in the area of Southwest 29th Street. She was killed instantly in the collision. Sergeant Burke has served with the Oklahoma City Police Department for over six years. She is survived by her mother, father, and sister. She was 31 years old, badge number 2052. Captain Terry Randall Turtle Arnold, Cook County Sheriff's Office, Georgia, end of watch Monday, October 3rd. Captain Terry Arnold suffered a fatal heart attack after responding to a fight between two students at Cook County High School in Adele. While taking one of the juveniles in custody, Captain Arnold collapsed. Medical personnel rendered aid, and he was transported to South Georgia Medical Center, where he was unable to be revived. Captain Arnold had served with the Cook County Sheriff's Office for 28 years and previously served with the Remington Police Department for over two years and the Adele Police Department for five years. He is survived by four daughters, a son, ten grandchildren, four siblings, a longtime companion, and her son and daughter. He was 59 years old, badge Cook 50. Deputy Sheriff Blaine Lane, Polk County Sheriff's Office, Florida, end of watch Tuesday, October 4th. 
Deputy Sheriff Blaine Lane was shot and killed while serving a felony arrest warrant in Polk County at about 3 a.m. He and three other deputies were invited into the subject's trailer to serve the failure to appear warrant for previous narcotics charge. While Deputy Lane and three other deputies checked the mobile home, the wanted subject walked into the room and pointed a gun at them. The deputies immediately fired at the subject, but one of the rounds went through the wall and struck Deputy Lane in the shoulder. He was transported to Lakeland Regional Health Medical Center, where he succumbed to his wounds. The subject, a convicted felon, was shot twice and is expected to survive. She has been charged with second-degree murder. Deputy Sheriff Lane had served at the Polk County Sheriff's Office for one year. He is survived by his three-year-old child. He was 21 years old, badge number 9228. Deputy Sheriff Sidney Carter, Sedgwick County Sheriff's Office, Kansas, ended watch Friday, October 7th. Deputy Sheriff Sidney Carter was killed in an automobile crash while responding to a disturbance call at about 9.30 p.m. Another vehicle ran a stop sign and struck a patrol car at the intersection of 135th Street West and 29th Street North near Mays. Deputy Carter had served with the Sedgwick County Sheriff's Office for two years. She had initially served as a jail deputy for 18 months and had finished field training as a patrol deputy one week before the crash. She is survived by her parents and siblings. She was 22 years old, tour of duty five years. Deputy Sheriff Matthew Sullivan Kerman, Union County Sheriff's Office, Tennessee, end of watch Sunday, October 9th. Deputy Sheriff Matthew Kerman was killed in a single vehicle crash in Possum Valley Road near Ayler Gap Road in Martinville shortly after midnight. Deputy Kerman had served with the Union County Sheriff's Office for less than one year and previously served with the Knox County Sheriff's Office. He is survived by his wife, mother, and sister. He was 27 years old. Detective Maisha Stewart, Greenville Police Department, Mississippi, end of watch, Tuesday, October 11th. Detective Maisha Stewart was shot and killed during a vehicle pursuit at 7.30 p.m. Greenville police officers and deputies with the Washington County Sheriff's Office were pursuing a subject who had fled after shooting his girlfriend. The subject was taken into custody following the pursuit. Sergeant Dustin DeMonte, Bristol Police Department, Connecticut, end of watch, Wednesday, October 12th. Sergeant Dustin DeMonte and police officer Alex Hamsey were shot and killed while responding to a domestic violence call at a residence near Redstone Hill Road and Birch Street in Bristol at about 11 p.m. A third officer was also shot and was transported to a local hospital in critical condition. The subject was shot and killed during the incident. Sergeant DeMonte had served with the Bristol Police Department for 10 years. He is survived by his expectant wife and two children. He was 35 years old. Police officer Alex Hamsey, Bristol Police Department, Connecticut, end of watch, Wednesday, October 12th. He was also part of the incident that killed Sergeant Dustin DeMonte. Officer Hamsey had served with the Bristol Police Department for eight years. He is survived by his wife. He was 34 years old. This one um, is a little bit personal. We just found the news out on this one. This morning when I woke up, I worked last night, and it started getting text messages late last night uh, into this morning. I knew this officer personally. He worked at the station that I work at, and um, it happened during the graveyard shift. Um, so this one, um, we lost another one on our, at our department. Police officer, Throng Thai, Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, Nevada. End of watch, Thursday, October 13th. Just bear with me, please. Uh, police officer, Throng Thai, was shot and killed while responding to a domestic disturbance call at the 800 block of East Flamingo Road at about 1 a.m. The subject opened fire on the officers with a handgun as they attempted to make contact with him at the intersection of East Flamingo Road and South University Center Drive. Officer Thai and a civilian were both struck by the subject's shots. Officer Thai succumbed to his wounds while being transported to a local hospital. The man fled at the scene, but was apprehended by a police canine a short time later after refusing to exit his vehicle. Officer Ty had served with the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department for 23 years and was assigned to the South Central Area Command. That's the, the command that I work at. That just, uh, that hurts. And they all hurt, but this one's obviously a little bit more personal. <sighs> um, Officer Ty is 49 years old and um, been with the department for 23 years. Um, we also pay tribute to all canine officers killed in the line of duty. 
We will now read the names of the following canine officers who have paid the ultimate sacrifice. Canine Rocket Metropolitan Police Department, District of Columbia, into watch Monday, September 19th. Canine Rocket died in the handler's patrol vehicle after the temperature monitoring system alarm system failed while idling at the D.C. police facility at 2800 New York Avenue Northeast. Canine Rocket was left in the, in the marked patrol canine vehicle with air conditioning running. All Metropolitan Police Department canine vehicles are equipped with an alarm system that activates when the inside temperature rises to unsafe levels. The monitoring system can also lower the windows. The system malfunctioned when the air conditioning failed. Canine Rocket was an explosive detection dog assigned to the Special Operations divisions. He was a Belgian Malinois German Shepherd mix, male, seven years old. Canine Figo, Georgia State Patrol, Georgia, into watch Friday, October 7th. Canine Figo was shot and killed during an apprehension of a homicide suspect in Clayton County. Officers from the Clayton County Police Department had located the suspect on Riverdale Road near I-285. Shortly before noon, they requested assistance from the Georgia State Patrol and Clayton County Sheriff's Office. The subject initially stopped and then fled in his vehicle. This vehicle was immobilized by a pit maneuver in the 5500 block of Riverdale Road and redirected into the wooded area. Officers set up a perimeter and when the man refused to exit his vehicle and surrendered. Canine Figo was released for an apprehension and entered the woods. The man opened fire on Canine Figo, striking him multiple times before being shot and killed by officers. Figo was flown to Blue Pearl Animal Hospital in Sandy Springs, but died as a result of the wounds. Canine Figo and his handler were assigned to the Crime Suppression Unit, unknown breed male. Always Responding pays tribute to all first responders who paid the ultimate sacrifice. We will now read the names of those brave firefighters who lost their lives in the line of duty. Firefighter fatalities in the United States currently set at 77. Here are the names of the latest to pay the ultimate sacrifice. Gary DeCook, Captain. On Saturday, August 27th, Captain Gary DeCook was performing maintenance at the fire station, including fire apparatuses and equipment work. After he was finished, he went home and less than five minutes after arriving collapsed in his driveway. His fellow emergency responders arrived at the scene and immediately performed CPR, but were unsuccessful. He passed away from an apparent heart attack. He was from Barnes City Fire Department, Barnes City, Iowa. End of watch, August 27th. Captain Cook was 66 years old. Gerardo Rincon Crubas, during the early morning hours of Tuesday, September 20th, while assigned to the Moose Fire near Salmon, Idaho, Crubas Gerardo Rincon suffered a medical emergency and passed away. He's from the Salmon Chalice National Forest, Salmon, Idaho. In the watch September 20th, Crubas Rincon was 48 years old. Charles D. Crampota, Captain, on Friday, September 23rd, Captain Charles D. Crampota responded to a fully involved mobile home fire. After extinguishing the fire and being cleared from the scene, Captain Compota returned home approximately three hours later. He was found deceased from an apparent heart attack. Investigation into the incident continues from the Alvin Volunteer Fire Department in Alvin, Texas. End of watch, September 23rd. Captain Compota was 60 years old. Timothy Fledger, Chief. On July 16th, Chief Timothy Fledger was involved in a motor vehicle crash while returning from a fire department mandated training at Mammoth County Fire Academy as Chief Fledger was driving his Keyport Borough assigned vehicle and was struck head on by an oncoming vehicle. Chief Ledger sustained traumatic injuries and was transported via ambulance to Jersey Shore University Trauma Center. After being stabilized, he underwent surgery to reconstruct his right hip. In the days after his surgery, Chief Ledger was transported to a long-term facility for further rehabilitation. After approximately one month in a long-term rehab facility, he was able to be transported home to continue further rehab there. 
On September 30th, Chief Ledger was transported back to the hospital for a medical emergency and passed away. An autopsy determined that Chief Ledger's cause of death was pulmonary failure due to immobility produced by his injuries sustained in the crash. He was from Keyport Fire Department in Keyport, New Jersey. End of watch, September 30th, 2022, Chief Ledger was 32 years old. Michael Moody, Assistant Chief, on Sunday, October 2nd, 2022, while fighting the Bovee Wildfire near Halsey, Nebraska, Assistant Chief Michael Moody suffered an apparent heart attack and passed away. He was from Purdom Royal Fire District, Purdom, Nebraska. In the watch, October 2nd, 2022, Chief Moody was 59 years old. Curtis Brown, Chief. On Tuesday, October 4th, 2022, Chief Curtis Brown and Firefighter Brendan Torres were returning from a mutual aid traffic accident when they were involved in a motor vehicle collision with a semi-tractor trailer. Both were pronounced deceased at the scene. Investigation into the incident continues. They're from the Dalhart Volunteer Fire Department in Dalhart, Texas. End of watch, October 4th, 2022, Chief Brown was 51 years old. And Firefighter Brendan Torres was also involved in that same crash that killed Chief Curtis Brown uh, from the Dalhart Volunteer Fire Department, Dalhart, Texas. End of watch, October 4th, 2022, Firefighter Torres was 19 years old. Always Responding will continue to pay tribute each and every episode to all the brave men and women who paid the ultimate sacrifice so that they are never forgotten. Like I mentioned on my last episode, if you log on to the website, www.alwaysresponding.com, then you can hit click on the resource tab and you'll find several resources available for you to check out. Click on any of the links on the resource page and uh, they'll be taken directly to their website, which will provide you information you need. Um, you can also click on the tribute page and there you'll find uh, photos of all of the uh, heroes that I just mentioned above. And there you can click on the uh, names and leave a little bit of note about each one of those you can do as well. You know, it's that time of the of the episode where we have our guests tell us one of their war stories. Well, you know, fortunately, I'm, I'm kind of riding solo again today, so I'm going to give you one of mine. And since we just finished our five-year anniversary of 1 October, I think it's fitting that my war story should be my experience from that night. So October 1st, 2017, Myself and my partner Mark were assigned overtime for the Route 91 Country Music Concert and the MGM Festival Live. ROT didn't start that night until about 1700, which is 5 p.m., and we were scheduled to work until about 0100, 1, 1 o'clock in the morning. I, I believe that was the time. Ironically, Mark and I weren't even scheduled to work together that night. They had split us up on the assignment. But when we arrived for the briefing, we spoke with our sergeants, who were separate sergeants, and we asked to be assigned together, and they allowed us to do that. So we got to work together. So around 1730 or 530, after the briefing, we walked into the festival lot, and we ran into one of the, a friend of mine that, that was there. We talked to her for a few minutes and said hi and continued into the event. And we walked uh, towards the stage area just to kind of check it out. And we ran right into Jen, who, yeah, the same Jen that joined us on our last episode of Always Responding, said hello, gave hugs and said hi. And she continued to walk towards where she was going to be. And then Mark and I turned around and walked, um, started walking to where we were scheduled to, to be at for our overtime spot. And as we're heading there, we ran directly into Charles Hartfield. Now, for those who don't know, Charlie was the off-duty Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Officer who was at the concert with his wife. Now, both Mark and I had the pleasure of working with Charles for several years at one of the other area commands in the Valley. We said our normal police officer hello, and for those who don't know, that includes the traditional handshake, followed by the one arm around the back and pull each other in and hug, and then you say, hey, how are you doing? Where are you at now? How you been? How's how's life? Um, you know, the normal questions. Um, Charlie started, you know, talked to her for a few minutes, and then Charlie turns and walks away. 
And, uh, you know, of course, smiling the whole time. If anyone knows Charlie, that's the way he's always been, always was. Never stopped smiling. And now Charlie was working at the body-worn cameras at the time. They're the ones that all the officers wear on their uniforms and records all their actions. And um, at the time, I had a case where I needed to speak with someone from body-worn cameras, and Mark knew this because him and I worked together at the time. So as Charlie walked away, Mark says, Hey, Charlie, um, Keith has a question about the cameras. Charlie never stopped walking. He just turned around, kept smiling, and said, I'm off today, bud. Talk to me on Monday. Turned back around and, and walked away. Mark and I just turned back around and walked back over to our designated spot and started to enjoy the concert and, and the event. So about 2100 or 9 p.m., we decided to go eat our lunch in our car, and uh, we sat down and ate for a little bit. So about 930, 2130, we went back to our spot, and somebody brought up a phone to us uh, that they found. So we took it and walked it over to Lost and Found and returned to our spot at about 2150 or 950 and just started hanging out and watching the show. Now, our spot at the time, if you were at the event, was in the back kind of grass area, but over towards the far, it'd be the far west side, but over towards the Las Vegas Boulevard side of the event. Now, right before, I want to say right before 10 o'clock or 2200, there was a female who was having a medical episode in the crowd right there. And so we started to attend to her to find out what was going on. So she was sitting in the crowd and I started to attend to her while Mark waited over in the middle of the concrete area because it was so packed. And he had to wait there to try to flag down medical so they realized where, exactly where we were at. I was in the middle of the, uh, talking with the female when I heard what I thought were fireworks going off behind me just off my left shoulder. So I turned around to see if I could see the fireworks, but of course there was nothing there. I heard the concert goers screaming and cheering, so I figured I just missed the fireworks. So I turned back around and focused on the female. When I heard the first big blast of, of what later I determined to figure out was gunfire, you know, bah, 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 bah. and I look over at Mark and we both made eye contact with each other and we both had that look on our face and the look was, that's not fireworks. So I turned back to look and I realized now the stage lights are dark. And I turned back over to Mark and I, and I just gave him that look and I go, let's go. And we both took off running towards the stage because that's where the sound from the shots were coming from. And that's the danger. We, we, have to, we have to go towards danger. So, and my actual first thought at that time was that there had been an accident out on Las Vegas Boulevard and it was some kind of road rage incident and whoever got into the accident were shooting each other. That's my actual first thought at that time. But as we're running towards the stage and running towards where we're thinking maybe the, the situation is coming from, Mark and I start running into concert goers as they're running past us and we start seeing um, concert goers with uh, gunshot wounds to their extremities, to their arms, to their legs. And we're like, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. Um, if it's a shooting outside on the Las Vegas Boulevard, why are there concert goers with gunshot wounds? So as they're running past us, we're yelling for them to keep keep going, keep getting out of here. There's something in front of us. Obviously now we're realizing that maybe there's something inside the concert area that's the problem. And we're trying to push all these people past us. But at the same time, as the as the crowd's running past us, we're trying to stop people. And hey, do you, do you see where the shooter's at? Do you do you see where the threat's at? And nobody has seen anything. Nobody knows where anything's at. 
So we're still heading there and we're figuring out now that the shooter must be on the concert grounds. So we, Mark and I continue towards the stage uh, because that's where we believe it's coming from. So we arrive in the area, the west side VIP seating area. Um, it's a big like uh, stairwell area. And then on the one side, it's kind of like bathrooms, uh, metal bathrooms. And when we get there, we observe numerous citizens hunker down, taking cover behind the VIP bathroom walls that were constructed as part of the VIP seating area. And there was so much chaos, people running around screaming. Uh, there were multiple citizens with gunshot wounds, some obviously fatal, others were to their extremities. We couldn't locate where the shooter or, or shooters were coming from. And we had no idea where they were at. Uh, there was another loud, long burst of gunfire. Bah, 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 bah. I mean, it was just, just super loud. Now, the best way that I've always been able to explain it to my, my wife, my family, people who weren't there, was it sounded like there was somebody in a helicopter with one of those belt-fed machine guns that you always see in the movies. It was that loud, and it was that um, fast is what it sounded like to me. That's just my personal opinion. It just came out so loud. Um, and uh, when I, I, I turned towards the grass area towards the front of the where the concert event center was to look to see if I could see anything, and all I saw was uh, rounds hitting the ground, and it was just chaos. Mark and I started to make our way towards the stairs of the VIP seating area when the next volley of gunfire hit. Bah, 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 and just super loud. I mean, you, you don't know unless you were there what that sound sounded like and what was going through our mind. Again, it sounded like a belt-fed machine from, a, from a, a machine gun from a helicopter. My actual thought at that moment was that we're getting overrun by a group of extremists or terrorists on the ground. Mark and I have been in the crowd receiving these volley of gunfire, multiple rounds of shots for at least five or six minutes now of the 11 minutes, and we observed multiple fatalities and hundreds of civilians with gunshot wounds. So we're thinking there are probably multiple shooters, um, plus the sound on the ground that night from the gunfire. Man, you know, I, I tell you, I would have bet money that there was a team of assailants on the ground. You know, I, I'm thinking a Mumbai-type attack, really. I really thought it was multiple assailants with overpowering weapons. I just did. So we're by the stairs of the VIP scene area. We're going through another volley of gunfire. I'm thinking <laughs> we're going to see the assault team that's responsible for this carnage any second at that point. You know, and Mark and I are the only two officers we had seen in this area the entire time. I, I'm holding my, my weapon in my hand, which is a Glock 27 40 caliber. And I remember looking at it, and it seemed so freaking small. I, w I wasn't wearing my body armor at the time. We, you know, I'm, I'm grandfathered in. I've been on for 20, well, it was 15 years at that time, but I was grandfathered in, wasn't required to wear it. And like I told my wife later, body armor wasn't going to do anything for me that night. So I look at my firearm, kind of laugh to myself and say, this, this ain't going to do shit. I reholster it. And in my head, I say, I say goodbye to my wife. I say goodbye to my two older boys who I knew would remember me because they were older. And then I say goodbye to my daughter. And... My daughter was younger at the time. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, my, my boys will remember me. But I asked God, I said, please. I said, God, please have my daughter remember me. Have it where she remembers her dad. That's all I asked. Because I knew I wasn't going to make it out that night. I just knew it. That all the carnage that we were seeing, all that was going on, I just asked her, please let my daughter remember her dad. Mark and I look at each other, and we said, let's go. And we took up all those stairs to the VIP scene area and headed towards the stage. 
Once on the VIP area, we observed several subjects dealing with a male who had been shot in the head and several other subjects who were just running around aimlessly. As we made it to the stairs on the opposite side, a subject came running up to us, got down on his knees, and began to pray as he begged for us not to go the way we were headed. He yelled, you're going the wrong way. We said, no, this is the way the shooting is coming from. And he said, I know, I know, you can't go that way. You're going to be killed. Don't go that way. He kept praying, and he was so serious, the look he had on his face. We looked at him and said, no, this is our job. We have to go this way. This is the way the sounds of the gunfire are coming from. And we just said, you know what? Just go back the way you came from. We have to keep going this way. And he, he left, and we continued down the stairs and over to a set of uh, porta johns that had been set up just to the side of the, of the stage. Um, and we got over there. And at this time, when we got to that location, was the first time we actually saw another officer for the first time since the shooting started. And he ran up to us and immediately said for us to remove our yellow reflective traffic vest that we've been wearing for the whole event. And he said, you need to remove those, take those off. He can see you as he's shooting at you. And it wasn't until that moment when he told us to do that, we realized that we've been sticking out the whole time wearing these reflective vests in this dark environment. And we were he was being able to see us with these vests on. So Mark and I immediately ripped off the vest, threw them on the ground, and then continued towards the wall that was running parallel to Las Vegas Boulevard and uh, Mendeley Bay, where we ended up uh, hunkering down at that location and pretty much stayed there for the rest of the night as the, as the event continued. Um, and once we got to that location, that's when the radio started saying that there was um, victims coming into the various hotels down the strip, and we were getting calls of active shooters at those locations. We thought that the, the shooting continu- was continuing down the strip north from our location at that point because there were so many different calls coming in from all these different hotels at that time. And so Mark and I looked at each other like, man, this is this is the real deal. This is the real situation. You know, not realizing until later on that that was all the concert goers that were leaving the event going down there uh, to those different hotels walking in with gunshot wounds and, you know, no nothing against the uh, security officers or the uh, locations at that time. They had no idea that those were just the victims from our event coming to their hotels with the gunshot wounds. They thought that there was active shooters outside of their hotels um, and that the victims were standing outside getting shot. So they were calling in active shooters from their locations at, at, that, moment, at that moment too. So, you know, it was a very hectic situation as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. The first waning moments of the event. So Mark and I make it to the wall. All this other stuff is going on. There was um, reports of explosive devices at another hotel right across, li- literally right across the street from where Mark and I were set up at the wall at, at Las Vegas Boulevard. So we're dealing with that. When we had time to actually catch our breath and take a moment to kind of figure out what the heck was going on or where we were at and get our bearings straight. I was actually able to get on the phone and I, uh, I text my wife real quick and I told her just real quick, Hey, I'm okay for right now. And she sends me one back and she's like, what the F do you mean you're okay for right now? Well, she had no idea. She was at home, wasn't watching TV, had no idea what was going on. So I sent her a text that's like, listen, there's been a shooting at the event that I'm working you may want to turn on the news and check it out. So, of course, she quickly turns on the news and, you know, to say she got no sleep the rest of the night is probably an understatement. So she had to deal with that the rest of the night, not knowing if I was okay because I was unable to get a hold of her the rest of the night, you know, because for one, my phone was dying. And then two, as you can imagine, 
there was really no service with everybody else there dealing with, you know, trying to get a hold of their loved ones, their loved ones trying to get a hold of them. So, you know, she's dealing with her stress, trying to worry about me, uh, not getting any connection with what I'm going through or if I'm okay, looking, obviously watching the news reports and getting all the um, reports back from that and how traumatic it was and getting the updates that, you know, the death toll was rising throughout the night. And, you know, unfortunately, at the end of the event, there was 58 innocent civilians that lost their ni- their life that night, you know. So as, as we're sitting there dealing with all that, our phones kind of start going off a little bit. We're getting some text messages, you know, as the night progresses. And initially, there was a rumor that an officer had been shot at the event. And we're like, ah, we haven't heard anything about that. And, you know, we'd been around a couple more officers as the, as the evening progressed. Um and then it was updated, no, that we think it's an off-duty officer. Well, we'd ran into a few off-duty officers throughout the night. They're partying and having a good time. So we're like, man, who, who could it have been? And then we received the devastating news that it was our good friend that Mark and I had just spoken to a few hours prior, Charlie, and that he had been shot during the event. And then it was updated that he had passed. And it just, Mark and I just looked at each other, and it was just this look of, man, you know, you, you work with somebody, you know somebody very personal, and you just saw him literally hours before and had a conversation with him. And it's just amazing how time is so short in this life and you don't really understand or take things into perspective until something like this happens. And such a senseless act and you can't put it into words. You can't try to rationalize it. It just, I don't know. You know, it's been five years since that night. And Mark and then Jen and Heidi who joined me on our, la- our last episode, our last episode were there. And along with thousands of others, you know, we we're lucky to make it out alive. We were, we were, by the grace of God, we didn't get injured. Um, and thank God, nothing worse happened to us. We made it out. But unfortunately, there were 58 other innocent victims who didn't, who didn't make it out, you know. I, and I share this as my war story today as a reminder of just how fragile life can be. All of us there on that cool October night, we're in the middle of an amazing country concert, enjoying life, making plans for the upcoming week, the upcoming holidays, you know, their future. Tomorrow is never promised. Live for today. Ensure those in your life know that you love them. If you make a promise to do something, do it. Don't put it off till tomorrow. Tomorrow's not promised. When I was putting this podcast together, you know, my emphasis was on this October 1 event and the impact it's had on me, my family, my wife, my kids, and my friends, you know, and how Jen and Heidi joined me last episode and talked about how it affected them in their lives, my, my buddy Mark. But then with the events that happened this morning with the officer that I worked with and I knew from my area command and his life being taken short this morning from this senseless act of violence, everything just really has come into perspective. Man, his life is way too short. You, you can make plans for those this weekend coming up. You can make plans for this holiday season that's getting ready to start. Or, you know, I'm coming at the end of my career and I'm making plans for my retirement and what I'm planning to do or what I'd like to do, but it's not promised. You don't know. So all I'm saying is just live for today. Take care of yourself. We always talk about um, the stress of this job and how trauma can affect you and affect your well-being. Take care of yourself. Take care of your family. Make it to the next day. Make sure you're okay. If you're struggling, if you're having stress, if you're having issues, if something like this is happening to you, it could happen to our, our family here this today, our department, make sure you reach out to somebody, talk to somebody. You can go to our website, www.alwaysrespondingpodcast.com. There's a resource tab. Reach out to it. There's a lot of resources there. 
Again, thank you for allowing me to share my experience from that night with you. I really appreciate it. You know, getting my story out helps me heal from my traumatic experience from that event. So thank you. And to all the 58 angels out there and to all their families and friends, you are always in our thoughts and prayers. God bless you all. Hashtag Vega strong. Hashtag route 91 strong. Always, always in our hearts, always in our prayers. Always Responding will continue to work with many associated organizations to ensure all first responders receive the help and resources we need to ensure we all have a long and healthy career. We're wrapping up another edition of Always Responding, so thank you for spending some time with me today. I truly appreciate you. We're all in this together, and we are all first responders. If you're in corrections, fire, EMS, or a dispatcher, would love to be on the show. Please email us at alwaysresponding at gmail.com. We'd love to get you on an interview for one of our upcoming shows. But remember, everyone on the show will be asked to provide a war story for the episode's ending. So have one ready. No exceptions. Be sure to stop by our website at www.alwaysrespondingpodcast.com. Be sure to click on the tribute tab. And there you can honor the recent fallen first responders that were read from this episode. We can also be found on Facebook at KB Always Responding Andrew or Always Responding Podcast, and on Instagram at hashtag Always Responding Podcast. Thanks again for spending some time with me today. We hope everyone has a long, safe, and healthy career. For my co-host Sean, this is KB with Always Responding saying thank you. And remember, as they would always say in that 80s cop show, let's be safe out there. Shots fired at 4.15 a.m.